people in Taiwan have elected a new president who won by promising to stand up to China. But now comes the hard part of actually governing. For Saturday, January 13th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbong. We head to Taiwan to get at what the election means for the self-governing island. Also, we'll talk to an Israeli lawmaker backing the international lawsuit accusing his country's government of genocide. I do not want to say that the legal concept of genocide is relevant for what's going on in Gaza because I don't know. But I do want it to be investigated impartially. And people are now paying serious cash for coaches on how to have fun. You don't have to necessarily be silly or childish. It's really just more about having a lighthearted attitude towards life and towards yourself. Why is it so hard to have some fun? First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Members of the Houthi movement are promising a strong and effective response to the latest U.S. airstrike in Yemen. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the escalating violence is stoking fears of a wider regional conflict. A Houthi spokesman said the latest strikes, whose targets included a radar facility and a military base in Yemen, had no significant impact on the group's ability to attack ships that he called Israel-related from passing through the Red Sea. President Joe Biden warned Friday that he could order more strikes if the attacks on vessels don't stop. The Houthis say the motivation for the drone and missile attacks that have driven some shippers to reroute around southern Africa is to show support for Hamas and Hezbollah, two proxy militias funded and armed by Iran. Israel has been launching attacks in the Gaza Strip and across the northern border with Lebanon in the wake of the Hamas surprise attack that killed some 1,200 people on October 7th. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Two days before the Iowa caucuses, the state's being hit by extreme weather. Steve Futterman reports from Des Moines on the weather's impact on the final days of campaigning. All of the Republican presidential candidates have had to adjust their schedules, but some have been able to hit the road, including Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, who exhorted his supporters to show up on Monday. If you're willing to go out there and you're willing to brave the elements on a cold, windy, snowy January night uh, for me, and I'll fight for you for the next eight years. Former President Trump has had to adjust as well. He was set to appear in person at a rally that has now been turned into a tele-rally. The wind chill temperatures in some locations could be as low as 40 degrees below zero on Monday night. So the results will depend on who is willing to come out. For NPR News, I'm Steve Futterman in Des Moines. And the forecast on Monday is scheduled or forecast to be two below zero. The head of the SEC re- uh, released an update on the regulators investigation into how the agency's account on the social media site X was hacked. And Piers David Gura reports. The post appeared on Tuesday after the closing bell and it said falsely that the Securities and Exchange Commission had approved Bitcoin exchange traded funds. And almost immediately Bitcoin's price spiked by more than a thousand dollars. The SEC ultimately did approve those new Bitcoin investments a day later. Gensler says there is currently no evidence that the unauthorized party gained access to SEC systems, data devices, or other social media accounts. And the SEC staff is still assessing the impacts of the incident on the agency and the marketplace. Regulators are working with other agencies on the investigation, including the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. 
The recent heavy rainfall has caused street flooding in coastal communities across Massachusetts. In Duxbury, off-duty firefighters were recalled due to significant flooding. There have been 177 flight delays at Logan, 73 flight cancellations. More than 2,600 power outages are reported in the state. The Steamship Authority says high winds forecast for tomorrow will have the potential to cause service cancellations as well. Trips were canceled today. New Hampshire Democrats and independents are being asked to switch party affiliation so they can vote against former President Trump in the state's Republican primary in two weeks. WBUR's Anthony Brooks tells WBUR's Radio Boston that a super PAC is behind the effort. According to the New Hampshire Secretary of State Office, nearly 4,000 New Hampshire Democrats Democratic voters changed their party affiliation, and that's a possible indication that they plan to participate in the Republican primary. Recent polls in New Hampshire showed former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley within striking distance of Trump, who is in the lead. A private school in Dorchester is suing the city and a developer to stop an affordable housing project. The Epiphany School is challenging the way the 72-unit development on Center Street was approved by the Boston Planning and Development Agency. The school says the development will diminish the value of its property. The city and the developer have not commented on the suit. The New England Patriots are set to introduce their new head coach next week. Former Patriots player and current linebackers coach Jared Mayo is the 15th head coach in franchise history and its first black head coach. ESPN Patriots reporter Mike Reese says the first word that comes to mind when talking about Mayo is leadership. When he was a player for the Patriots, he was voted a captain in just his second season, which is a very rare situation. Only the elite leaders fall into that category. Some franchise icons like Devin McCourty, Tom Brady come to mind. Mayor replaces Bill Belichick, who parted ways with New England on Thursday after 24 years as its head coach. 57 degrees at 5.06. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Taiwan has elected a new president. Voters chose Lai Qingde, also known as William Lai, to be their next leader. The results came in just hours after polls closed today. Every single ballot was hand counted in public for transparency. This race, in the world's only Chinese-speaking democracy, has been closely watched both across the Taiwan Strait in China and across the Pacific Ocean in the U.S. And our co-host on All Things Considered, NPR's Elsa Chang, is in Taipei to tell us about it. Hey, Elsa. Hey, Andrew. So is this the outcome people were expecting in Taiwan? Well, going into the race, it did look pretty close. But yeah, a William Lai victory has been predicted the last few weeks. And just to make sure everybody understands, William Lai is the current vice president of Taiwan. He's in the Democratic Mm -hmm. Progressive Party, or DPP. The outgoing president, Tsai Ing-wen, is term limited, but she's been pretty popular. So Lai ran on the promise to continue her policies, especially when it comes to China and the U.S., Um, Also, Andrew, I just want to say, like, this is the first time in Taiwan that the presidency has remained with the same party after two terms. Hmm. Historically, voters here opt for a change after eight years. What's the reaction been so far in Taiwan? 
Well, our producer, Mallory Yu, was at the DPP's victory party and talked to a man named Ho Wenshi, who said he is so glad there is going to be continuity in Taiwan's governance. He's saying here the current president has led with caution the last eight years without provoking Beijing, and he believes the new president will maintain peace. Uh, meanwhile, I was at the gathering for the main opposition party, the KMT or Guomingdang, where there was, as you might expect, a much more subdued <laughs> mood. And we met this woman named Luo Yiting. She's 63. And she kind of blamed the KMT's loss today on the third party in this election for splitting the opposition vote. And she says that the KMT needs to draw younger voters and cultivate younger party leadership. And you know, we did meet a young KMT voter today. He's 20 years old. His name is Ling Xingyue. You look very sad. You're crying. Can you yes. tell me what you're feeling right now? Yes, I think that uh, in the future for the four years will be dark in Taiwan. Very, very dark. Yeah, he, he thinks the new president will not communicate effectively with China, like even less so than the current DPP president has. And that makes him scared of a possible war one day. Hmm. Well, let's talk China. Is this election outcome likely to anger China, you think? Well, it could. The government in Beijing has long maintained that Taiwan is part of China, and the DPP has in the past flirted with the idea of Taiwan's formal independence. But that has not been the message on this campaign trail. That said, Chinese officials have maintained that Lai, the president-elect, is a, quote, troublemaker and a separatist. They've also sanctioned the woman who's been elected vice president today, Bi Kim Chao. So uh, relations between Taiwan and China could get more complicated in the next four years. Though I do want to mention, it looks like the DPP will not have a majority in the legislature. So that means four years of divided government and possible gridlock on key issues like defense spending. And, and that split result is something that the Chinese government noted in its response to Taiwan's election results today. In their written statement, they said, quote, the DPP is unable to represent the majority of the island's public opinion. Okay, so that's how China might be feeling. But what about us? You know, what about the U.S.? Does the United States have a stake in this election outcome? Absolutely. Support for Taiwan is one of the few issues in Washington that receives wide bipartisan agreement, and for good reason. The U.S. is a major trade partner with Taiwan. This island now accounts for something like more than 90 percent of the world's most advanced semiconductor manufacturing. So Taiwan is key to global supply chains, which is partly why the U.S. provides Taiwan with weapons. More broadly, Taiwan is one of the few issues, Andrew, that could actually generate a confrontation between the U.S. and China. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has said that Taiwan is, quote, the most important and most sensitive issue in China-U.S. relations. And so any major event in Taiwan, like a presidential election, has the potential to affect the whole dynamic between the U.S., Taiwan, and China. That's Elsa Chang, host of All Things Considered in Taipei, Taiwan. Thanks a lot, Elsa. Thank you, Andrew. This is a persecution. He actually just stormed out of the courtroom. Innocent to proven guilty in a court of law. It's time for Trump's trials, our weekly take on all the legal challenges former President Donald Trump is facing. Immune or not immune? 
That was the question judges on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals considered this week. Trump's lawyer, John Sauer, argued that presidential immunity shields Trump from any criminal prosecution for alleged crimes committed in office, and specifically those related to the federal election interference case, in which Trump is criminally charged. According to their argument, the only way a prosecution would be legal is if Trump had been convicted in an impeachment trial, which he wasn't. Here's an exchange between Judge Florence Pan and Trump attorney John Sauer. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is no. Is, my answer is qualified, yes. Host Scott Detrow dug into the immunity question with NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro and Melissa Murray, an NYU law professor and the co-author of the upcoming book, The Trump Indictments. And Scott started by asking what her thoughts were on Trump's immunity argument. Like, I think the immunity argument was dumb, dumb, dumb. And I, I think it was made clear at oral argument how dumb it was. You know, there was this really unfortunate moment for Donald Trump's legal team where they were presented with earlier arguments made during the impeachment, the second impeachment hearing about whether or not Donald Trump should be impeached or whether he should stand trial. And, you know, they had his other lawyer talking about like, you know, criminal prosecution is the way to hold this person accountable now yeah. that he's no longer president. And they had to sort of say, ah, you know, we were making arguments that were convenient in the moment. They don't necessarily apply now. But it's also just a dumb argument because we know that there are lots of public officials who could be impeached and aren't, but are nonetheless held accountable through criminal prosecutions. There's also Richard Nixon. He was impeached. He was never convicted by the Senate. But nonetheless, Gerald Ford issued a pardon for him in order to insulate him from right. actual criminal liability going forward. That wouldn't have been necessary if the fact of his lack of conviction was dispositive. And Domenico, like, I think I, I think there's like clearly, Melissa, you and everybody expert looking at this think this is pretty clear cut. But I just want to really underscore those arguments in the moment of impeachment. Many Republicans voted him guilty. Mitch McConnell voted not guilty, but gave this big speech afterwards trying to have it both ways. And this was an argument that McConnell and many other Republican senators made at the time for why they voted not guilty. President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office. We have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation. And former presidents are not immune from being accountable by either one. Well, I mean, that's like taking into account that like anybody in the Republican Party or Democratic Party cares what Mitch McConnell has to say. Right? Well, in the moment I mean, they did, though, in like the in the moment, if Mitch McConnell had voted guilty, I think it's pretty good argument that enough other Republicans vote guilty behind him to convict him. Well, maybe. I I just think that there's been this sort of war between yeah. the sort of McConnell-led, quote-unquote, establishment uh, since at least 2010 with the rise of the Tea Party and the sort of Tea Party types who gave birth to the Trumpism that really has taken over the party. And I think that the fact that McConnell, who used to be such a strong Republican leader in the Senate, has really been sidelined by a lot of what we've seen um, with uh, whether it's the legal talk or political talk, that his influence has waned so much is really something that's been huge over the last few years. And where, you know, I don't necessarily think most of us thought that politically Trump would gain strength yeah. after January 6th. But that's why he's showing up in courtrooms now instead of being on the campaign trail right. in a place like Iowa, because 
doing that, making that political argument is what helps him raise money and has only helped him with the Republican base. As I try to process everything that happened this week, I feel like, Melissa, you have said this several times throughout the conversation that in both of the cases uh, at the heart of things this week, there's a clear legal setback for Trump or clear indications of a clear cut legal setback to come. And yet he still benefits politically, right, especially in the short term, especially as we go into the Iowa caucuses. He has managed to make himself in the eye of his supporters, the victim, the person who's being you know, trod upon by the unfair legal system or whatever he phrases that week over and over again, even as the legal proceedings move forward and, and also winning on, on, on delaying things. It's just it's just remarkable how that keeps happening. It's more than remarkable. I think it's more than just, you know, he's winning in the court of public opinion. For his supporters, he's made it so that law doesn't matter. And if law doesn't matter for that group of people, however large it is, who want Donald Trump back in the White House, then for them at least, Donald Trump really and truly is above the law. Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump is winning in the court of opinion with Republicans, but overall he's not. I mean, we still have a majority of independents and Democrats who will tell pollsters that they think he committed a crime. Yeah. Okay, like yeah. this is very different. And those are the voters who will determine an election. And all of that changed uh, from before and after the January 6th um, hearings that we saw televised. And people were tuning into that. And I think that we're we're in this weird place where you have Republicans believing almost everything that Donald Trump says, and then this whole other universe of people who are going to weigh in in a general election who don't. Melissa Murray, NYU law professor, co-author of the upcoming book, The Trump Indictments. Great to have you back with us this week. Thank you. Also joined, as always, by NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks, Domenico. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. And coming up at 6 on 90.9 WBUR, the Moth Radio Hour. In fact, listen again tomorrow morning. Israel's war with Hamas began in Gaza almost 100 days ago. Iowa getting ready to caucus and wait, wait, starts at 10. Start your Sunday here. Support for WBUR comes from the Mary Ellis Erichalian Foundation. I'm Susan Levy, and thanks for listening. 51 degrees at 518. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp. Family run for 60 years with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The U.S. military carried out more airstrikes overnight against the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. Officials say it's in response to Houthi attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. The Houthi have vowed revenge for the airstrikes. The U.N. is warning of impending famine in Gaza as more Palestinians have been told to leave their homes and shelter in central Gaza. That's where fighting between Israeli forces and Hamas is fierce. And bitter cold is hitting much of the country today with brutal winds and blizzard warnings in the upper Midwest. That's having an impact on traveling on the road and in the air as more than a thousand flights were canceled today. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Andrew Limbong. Two days of arguments have concluded at the International Court of Justice in The Hague over whether Israel's government is committing genocide in Gaza. The case was brought by South Africa, and Israel has called the accusations baseless, saying that it's defending itself against Hamas. Israel made their case at the court on Friday and opened by discussing the attacks of October 7th. The events of that day are all but ignored in the applicant's submissions, but we are compelled to share with the court some fraction of its horror, the largest calculated mass murder of Jews in a single day since the Holocaust. We do so not because these acts, however sadistic and systematic, release Israel of its obligations to uphold the law as it defends its citizens and territory. That is unquestionable. We do so because it is impossible to understand the armed conflict in Gaza without appreciating the nature of the threat that Israel is facing and the brutality and lawlessness of the armed force confronting it. The case has generated a lot of debate, especially within Israel, and particularly for Ofer Kasif. He's a member of Israel's legislative body, the Knesset, representing the left-wing Hadash party. Kasif expressed his support for South Africa's case and is now facing calls for his expulsion by fellow lawmakers. I spoke with him recently about his views and the controversy they've generated, and he started by explaining what exactly he'd like to see happen as a result of this trial. So what is needed is a kind of an organization or institution uh, that must be as impartial and unbiased as possible to investigate what's going on in Gaza. And so this is one thing that this, uh, I do not want to say that the legal concept of genocide is relevant for what's going on in Gaza because I don't know. But I do want it to be investigated impartially. And I think that the ICJ is one of the right institutions to do so. The second thing, which in my view is even more important, stems from my basic ideological value, which puts human beings and their well-being and lives as a superior value. We know that the death toll, not to mention the destruction, the starvation, the thirst, the lack of hospitals and medicine, that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. It doesn't matter who is responsible. That should be investigated and stopped. And also the hostages. There are still 136 Israeli hostages in the hands of the murderous Hamas. They are dying there, literally. They are dying. They have no medicine. They are held under terrible uh, 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 conditions, tortured. More and more Israelis begin to understand that the only way to get those poor hostages back home as healthy and as, as fast as possible is by exchange of prisoners and stopping the war. So that's an instrument that we have to use given the conditions in Israel. Well, 
even if the ICJ says Israel should stop its assault on Gaza, Israel really has no reason to stop, right? They claim their actions are in self-defense. And also, the court's decision would be difficult to enforce. So what's your motivation here? <laughs> Look, the motivation is to, to use any means that we have uh, internationally as well to stop the uh, the bloodshed and to save those lives I was talking about of Palestinians and Israelis alike. You know, so far, uh, about 85 members of the Knesset who, you know, who have signed a petition calling for your expulsion. Uh, do you feel like you have mm. any support for your stances? First of all, I have my own, uh, you know, comrades in uh, my party and movement and, of course, in the Knesset and outside, and they are totally supportive. And I, I visit, you know, the families Many of the families, not all of them, but uh, some of the families, you know, of the victims who were uh, murdered by the Hamas. And I visit the families of the hostages. And I must say that among them, there's a lot of support for my and our views. And it's uh, for me, it's much more encouraging than anything else, because those are the main victims. And I feel very close to them emotionally. And uh, so I'm happy that I have uh, uh, support among them, of course, obviously not all of them. But the most important thing for me is to follow in a, and to, uh, to behave and act uh, according to my beliefs. You know, you've talked about how your political activism is tied to, to your Judaism, even though you're an atheist. And I wonder, how did your upbringing inform, you know, your decision in this specific case? I strongly believe that the main ideas of Judaism and heritage are justice, peace, and equality. And I tell you something else, which I think that is even stronger. I think that originally, and you can see it, especially when you refer to the prophets, that the prophets were dissidents. I think Judaism is a, is a very strong legacy of dissidents. And dissidents means to stay by justice against the government or the ruler uh, once the ruler or the government violates basic uh, uh, principles of justice and uh, equality. That's Ofer Kasif. He's a member of the Israeli Knesset. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Are we having fun yet? For some of us, fun is, well... Not that fun. You know, what is it that Jack Torrance in The Shining said? All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And maybe we take fun too seriously, right? Like search how to have fun on Google and almost 8 billion search results come up. And when did we stop knowing how to have fun? There's people out here paying over hundreds of dollars to hire party coaches and play coaches, uh, paying to attend seminars and workshops on how to have fun in life. All this got us thinking, what's so hard about having fun? So we called up an expert on that. Catherine Price is the author of The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. Hey, Catherine. Hi, thank you for having me. Can can you define some terms here? Like, what is fun? So what I found is that the dictionary definition doesn't match the lived experience when people have fun. And so I decided as a science journalist and writer, I decided, well, I'm going to try to come up with a better definition of what fun is. And the definition I came up with is that fun or true fun, as I call it, is the combination of three states, playfulness, connection, and flow. 
And when those three states are together, like the center of the Venn diagram, that is the feeling of fun. Playfulness does not mean you have to play games. A lot of adults get very nervous when you use the word <laughs> playfulness. So I like to say you don't have to necessarily be silly or childish. It's really just more about having a lighthearted attitude towards life and towards yourself. Connection refers to this feeling of having a special shared experience with other people. And then flow is active and engaged. And really importantly, flow requires you to be present. So if you're distracted mm -hmm. at all, you can't be in flow and you can't have fun. So long story short, I believe that the most accurate definition of fun is that it is a state of playful, connected flow. Interesting. So this issue of, you know, just telling people to have more fun, right? I mentioned earlier some of the things people are doing to figure that out, right? Uh, you know, people are hiring a party coach or a fun coach. Uh -huh. um, and I, on the one hand, I can see people like myself kind of rolling their eyes at this, you know, <laughs> just the idea of a party coach, right? Um, but on the other hand, I don't know if it's something like akin to like a physical trainer, right? Someone to just help you along. And I, I don't know, I kind of want to get your take on why these jobs exist and how have we commodified the business of fun? I mean, I think that the reason that there's a market for such things is that there's a genuine problem, mm -hmm. which is that we don't, we, we, we're not feeling connection or playfulness or flow that often. Things feel very serious. We are very lonely and isolated, and we're very distracted. Everyone is so busy, but yet unfulfilled. So I think that the market does speak to this genuine longing that we have for something more. On the flip side, I don't think it's necessary to do that. I think that there are steps each of us can take and reflections we can you know, engage in that can fill our lives with more yeah. everyday moments of fun without having to spend money. You know, and it is interesting. I mean, I literally have thousands of stories from people around the world about fun at this point. And it's fascinating to notice how few of those involve people spending money or even going anywhere. I think those are two misperceptions we have about fun, that it costs money and that you have to be outside of your everyday life for it to occur. And then that leads to another misconception we have, which is that fun is for the privileged. And that gets to the whole, like, how dare you think about fun right now? You know, that's only for people who are in this particular echelon of society. That's not true. I mean, it's really not true. Like, sure, if you have a ton of money, you might be able to facilitate fun in some ways other people might not, but you don't have to have that. I, I recently spoke to someone who told me about two hours of fun that he'd had where he was sitting on a park bench with his nephew just trying to catch leaves as they fell off a tree. Like that does not cost money. Yeah, it doesn't. But I wonder then now how much social media plays into this, right? Um, because I know when I play with my nieces and, and nephew, right? My sister then always like, gets out her camera that we got to like pose in the leaves or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Right? And exactly. then she has to post it on the gram. It's like, well, we were just having fun. And now we, <laughs> shout out to my sister. I hope you're listening. I love you. <laughs> right. But what does social media do with our perception and our concept of having fun? I think it's really messed us up because one of the requirements for fun is that you be completely present and that your inner critic is silent. It's those two requirements. <laughs> and if you're performing, then you're not fully present and you probably have your inner critic on in some capacity, not even necessarily saying bad things, but just being like, oh, does my smile look right? Do I really look like I'm having fun? Like, is that the version of fun I want to, you know, project to the world? That kills fun. Fun is very fragile. <laughs> it's like a sensitive flower, like it's going to run away, you know? So I think that social media really warps our 
vision of what fun is because you look mm -hmm. at people's posed photos and you think everyone's having more fun than you and it always happens on a beach and then it also gets in the way of us experiencing fun because it gets in the way of us experiencing our own lives if you ever find yourself turning your life into a performance then you are not having fun all right so i'm going to come to you hat in hand stand in for my listeners right um <laughs> if i want to start having more fun today where do i start i'll pay you the 500 hundred dollar entry fee to be my fun consultant or whatever oh nice oh, great. <laughs> what's I'm the one thing making money what's here. the one thing i can do yeah <laughs> if i were to give you a tip here i would suggest that you think back on moments from your own life that stand out to you as having been fun and notice what themes emerge these these are things that you should prioritize I'd also say though, to really play around with the idea of how could you build more playfulness, connection and flow into mm -hmm. your everyday life? You know, how could you be more present? How could you reduce distractions? One suggestion I always give for playfulness in particular that I love is to try to be playfully rebellious. You know, do things that kind of break the rules of adult life a little bit, not in the way of like getting you arrested, but just something that's because it delights you, like do stuff that delights you and create delight for other people. Just as one concrete example, I once gave a talk somewhere and this woman came up to me and she told me about how she and her friends had had these disco parties in their basement with these portable disco lights. I mean, that itself, roller skates were involved. That was playfully rebellious, but I was like, oh my goodness, you can buy these disco balls off Amazon for $9.99. And so I ended up buying a bunch of these disco balls and just sending them to friends with like no explanation, just because I thought, uh -huh. well, that will be delightful, you know? And so just that kind of mentality, how could you bring more delight to the world will increase the fun that you experience. And then lastly, this is a great list of uh, one suggestion that I'm giving you. I'm giving you like 17. But <laughs> yeah, you know, it's one long suggestion. Yeah. One long suggestion is to prioritize it. Like that's the most important thing. Take fun seriously. Play around with it and just notice the difference in your mood. I mean, it's true. I'm, I'm a convert. I mean, that's not surprising <laughs> given that I wrote the book. But we should be having more fun. The world would be a better place if we had more fun. That was Catherine Price, author of the book, The Power of Fun, and her subsec is called How to Feel Alive. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. So, new year, new you, new job? If you're feeling like it's time for a professional change, one of the first things you'll need to do is update your resume. Career coach Cynthia Pong says you never know when the right job will come along and you'll want to send that resume over without delay. It's kind of one of those be ready so you don't have to get ready type of things. But getting a resume together can be daunting and stressful. No worries, though. NPR's got your back on this one. Here's LifeKit host Mariel Segura. All right. Our goal here is to bring you one step closer to the job you want. See how I summarized there at the top of the piece? That's what you want to do on your resume. After you put down your personal info, name, email, phone number, at the very top, Pong says you should write a several-sentence summary. So you can think of this as your mission statement. 
And this is a way to show the hiring manager why you'd be a great fit for this job. Especially if you're someone who other folks tend to underestimate what you bring to the table or you're doing something non-traditional in your career or you're a career changer or something like that. Pong, by the way, is the founder of the career coaching firm Embrace Change. So she says about three to five lines here, really a few sentences at most. And this is who you are professionally in a nutshell. You can start with some adjectives, engaging, thorough, creative, and then your role or desired role. And then you could say, you know, podcast host for mission-driven audio initiatives and organizations. And then I would say something like excels at X, Y, and Z. And the last sentence of the summary can be something about where you're going with your career. You know, is there an arc to it? Do you know what kind of roles you'd like next? After the summary, Pong suggests that you include a section called core competencies. Where you list maximum of four to six areas where you really excel. So look at the job posting, you know, see what they're looking for, what keywords they use, and how those align with your skills. Just make sure you're not repeating what's in your summary. Okay, next up is work experience. You're going to list the relevant places you've worked, plus the years you were there. And maybe if the company isn't a household name, you can put down a few words about what it does. Then you'll put bullet points under each job that show what you've achieved or accomplished. If you have a gap in your resume, you can put down things like unpaid community work, freelance work, education or skills development, basically other things you did during that time. Now, the only other footnote I'd add here is if it is a very long gap or you otherwise feel kind of compelled to proactively frame what happened here for folks, then you could include that in the cover letter. But either way, you know, be prepared to discuss it in the interview confidently if and when you get to that stage. Also, if you took a while off from working because you were sick, for instance, or caring for a loved one, you could write something like medical leave or sabbatical on your resume and list the year. After that, in the lower third of your resume, you're going to list other skills, languages, software programs you know, also educational experience. You don't have to put down your date of graduation, especially if you're concerned about age discrimination, but it is good to include your major. Because you never know what could spark a connection between you and whoever ultimately is reading the resume. And you can have a section for awards or volunteer or community work or publications or leadership roles in industry groups. After that, proofread your resume, maybe have a friend or a mentor look it over, and it's ready to go. Hope you get the job. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Stay with us at 6 for the Moth Radio Hour. On Monday, the first votes of the 2024 presidential election will be cast in Iowa. Listen Monday night at 8 for live special coverage of the Iowa Republican Caucus on 90.9 WBUR. Get closer to the issues. Get closer to your vote. 51 degrees at 539.
WBUR supporters include The Lyric Stage with Trouble in Mind, directed by Don M. Simmons. It's 1955, and seasoned actress Willetta Mare is finally making her Broadway debut. This moving backstage look at identity and stereotypes cracks open searing truths about the American theater. Through February 4th, lyricstage.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. John Kerry is stepping down as U.S. climate change envoy, sources tell NPR. The 80-year-old who was Secretary of State in the Obama administration and a former senator from Massachusetts will leave the post soon. It's the last weekend for presidential hopefuls to campaign before the Iowa caucuses on Monday, the unofficial start to the 2024 presidential election. This amid brutal winter weather. That weather, which stretches over much of the country, also caused the NFL to postpone today's Buffalo Bills-Pittsburgh Steelers playoff game until Monday. I'm Janine Herbst, and you're listening to NPR News from Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Andrew Limbong. In South Florida, 9 million people rely on the Everglades to absorb flood water during storms and provide drinking water. But it's also an ecosystem in crisis. Bright Lit Place, a new podcast from WLRN, tells the story of the long-running effort to undo the damage to the Everglades and help us survive in a warmer world. Here's an excerpt from host Jenny Stiletovich. As a boy, Michael Frank lived on a tree island surrounded by miles of sawgrass in the Everglades. Be careful when I some holes in here too. Lime rock underneath, but then again, there's holes. Islands like his once dotted the vast shallow river of grass that spilled over the banks of Lake Okeechobee and flowed south towards the place where we're walking, across the sawgrass marshes and south to the tip of Florida. The marshes formed a bowl between the coastal ridge along South Florida's east coast and the cypress and mangrove swamps to the west before dumping into the Gulf of Mexico and Florida Bay. If you feel a soft spot, there's a hole in the lime rock. Frank is showing me how to find water in the dry season by digging a hole. It's kind of like a well. What you would do, you, you go ahead and make your hole. You know, put the mud on the side, this way you know where it is. <laughs> it is stuff on it. And during the dry season, the only way you can get water is through that hole. And not only you, the rest of the animals would, would, would congregate at that hole. Okay, huh. oh. so you want to go further? Or you... Yeah, yeah. My, my knees are gone, so that's why I gotta walk gently. Frank's an old man now. He's a tribal elder with the Miccosukee tribe, and the world he grew up in is mostly gone. 
The sprawling river was dammed up to make way for farms and a booming real estate market. This part of the Everglades is just a sliver of the tribe's ancestral homelands, making up the 75,000-acre Alligator Alley Reservation here in the center of the Everglades. The tribe has a special name for it. means a bright lit place. It's like shining. Uh, look at that. Look at it. It's shining, the water from the sun. Hayalit means light. It's lit up. Historically, the Everglades covered nearly 4,000 square miles, a river of grass 100 miles long and 40 miles across. Now, only a fifth of that wilderness is left. The rest has been carved into pieces to provide a massive system for water supply and flood control. That infrastructure paved the way for modern South Florida. It's also what's now killing the Everglades. Too much water gets stored in some places, other parts are dying of thirst. We have lived uh, according with, with nature and with the animals and the birds, but development. People want more land, people want more access from here to there. That comes first. With climate change making natural events like hurricanes and wildfires worse, we now know that getting our natural systems, like the Everglades, to work again is more important than ever. But reversing the damage in the Everglades has been an epic fight. We're going to focus on the biggest effort yet, a sprawling comprehensive Everglades restoration plan approved by Congress in 2000. It's often called SERP. The plan is like a giant puzzle trying to reconnect the pieces of the Everglades now divided by levees and canals and farms and cities. Originally, it was expected to cost just under $8 billion, split between the U.S. government and Florida. At the end of 20 years, more than 60 projects were supposed to save the wilderness. It could have also given Florida a head start on fighting climate change, but that's not what happened. Growing up, Frank's family lived on a tree island called Highland. And when one of my grandfather's friends told him, hey, there's a, there's a, an island over here which nobody ever lived. It's got a lot of trees and it's high, and when the water's high, it never goes underwater. So that's when we moved from Casalapo all the way to that island. And that's where I was born, and most of our brothers and sisters the Everglades is where the tribe lived and sought refuge during multiple wars. There were more of the tree islands then, and they were bigger. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, all lived in airy chickies and farmed corn or raised pigs. But these days, the islands that are left are smaller. That's because the bright-lit place now sits in an area that's regularly flooded and hemmed in by levees. It's used to hold the water that replenishes South Florida's drinking water aquifer and to keep the coast from flooding. Instead of a wide river of grass flowing across ridges and sloughs like corrugated cardboard, the water gets squeezed into canals and compartments where it can remain unnaturally high. My island's always about a foot underwater every year, but during the, like a heavy hurricane season, it's about two, three feet underwater every year. 
There are the big trees. The reason why we went to the island, because there was big trees, they don't exist no more. They are dead. They are dead. Frank's literally watching his homeland wash away. My way of life, living in Everglades, it's gone. It's beautiful, but it's just a skeleton compared to what it used to be. About 60 miles away, the opposite is happening in Florida Bay and the Upper Keys. Instead of too much water, the southern tip of the Everglades is getting too little. We're in Florida Bay with fishing guide Tim Klein. So it's just a, it's an ugly cycle, you know, and and you know. We desperately need more consistent water. This is where Tim Klein grew up, on a necklace of islands hanging off South Florida, surrounded by some of the best fishing flats in the world. Acres of seagrass meadows carved up by channels are inhabited by bonefish, tarpon, and permit, the holy trinity of saltwater fly fishing. Years on the flats made Klein one of the best guides in the Keys or anywhere. But here, too little fresh water is reaching the bay. It now gets about half of what it received a century ago. That means in the dry season, the ocean can get too salty. That damages seagrass and drives away fish. And that is killing Klein's way of life. You know, like the most famous bonefish spots in our backyard is what we call downtown, Shell Key, Lignum Vitae. The grass on those flats are, are you know, like 70% of the grass is gone. And that's where, you know, the bonefish fed and stuff. So we, the thing that we've lost, uh, you know, starting, you know, 10, 12 years ago is the, our, our, our big bonefish. These days, the Champion Flats guide spends more of his time leading eco-tours. You take a short ride and then you enter into the Everglades National Park. You just go into just heaven in my eyes. I, I got all new clientele now because I've been doing this for what 38 years now and the people I've fished in the past are just not here anymore, you know. Restoration promised to deliver enough fresh water to help revive the seagrass meadows where bonefish use their tough snouts to hunt for shrimp and crabs. It still might, but all the while, Florida keeps growing, with more housing sprouting up along the Everglades' borders. Climate change driving up sea levels and creating hotter conditions just compounds the stress. The quandary here isn't so different from other parts of the country, where we're trying to undo the damage from turning nature into infrastructure without considering the consequences. Bright Lit Place is a podcast from WLRN and the NPR Network with support from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. It's hosted by Jenny Stalatovich. Find full episodes along with photos and maps at brightlitplace.org.
Last thing for today, the rapper 21 Savage just dropped his latest album on Friday. I stand on business, dot my eyes and cross my T's. All I got is these little pictures when I think about all the G's. Memories in my head, the devil talking to me. It's his first solo album in more than five years, and it's called American Dream, which is maybe a comment on his recent immigration battles. Here to talk about the album is Rodney Carmichael. He writes about hip-hop or NPR music and is co-host of the Louder Than a Riot podcast. He joins us from Atlanta. Hey, Rodney, what's up? Hey, what's going on, Andrew? All right, so this is his first solo album in more than five years. Why is this such a big deal? Well, mostly it's because 21 has really been fighting for his life. I mean, for the last five years, he's been mired in a legal battle that really made this chart-topping rapper the face of an overlooked a criminalized class of people in America, and that's black undocumented immigrants. A week before he was due to perform at the Grammys, for the first time in 2019, he got arrested by ICE agents. And to the surprise of nearly every hip hop fan in existence, the rapper who had been repping East Atlanta as his home was actually born in London. And he'd come to America with his mom as a child and had been living here on really an expired visa for years. Huh, and, and there were like no hints of that in his music, right, up until now? Yeah, not at all. I mean, this is an artist whose discography is really filled with death ballads and survivor's guilt, all really a consequence of the violence that has defined his upbringing in East Atlanta. And the closest nod to his immigrant origins really came when he empathized with people, quote unquote, stuck at the border on a song called A Lot. Been through some things, but I couldn't imagine my kids stuck at the border. Flint still need water. Was innocent, couldn't get lawyers. Oh and many fans now consider that song and what he said on that song to be the trigger that set his targeting by ICE agents in motion. And I should say, A Lot was huge, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember when it came out, it was just like everywhere. Yeah, um, yeah. chart topping, yeah. Grammy, uh, success, everything. Yeah, um, so in the intro, you know, I, I was I almost introduced him as an Atlanta rapper, right? Mm -hmm. But then considering all these immigration issues, I was like, mm, I don't know. And then I was thinking about the music video to the single Red Room, and it's very much a tribute to England. I mean, here's how the video starts. I swear when you not think of England, you not think big yards, man in big hats, posh touch drinking tea in Buckingham Palace, big Ben and black cabs, them telephone buses, you know. So how should we think about his uh, sense of place? Well, this dude is very much an Atlanta rapper. I mean, let's set the record straight. He came of age here. He survived the poverty that informed so much of his experience and his music. And in this video, he's in Brixton, where his family in London lives. And he's really showing us that there's an equally disparate reality in the UK that he and his mom escaped for what they thought would be a, a better life here. I mean, just like in a lot of ways, trap music kind of peels back the layers on the Black American experience, and particularly the Atlanta experience. He's showing that the same thing exists on the other side of the water. All right, so let's bring it back to American Dream. Is there, is there another song here that you really like? Yeah, I think um, Letter to My Brother. I feel your pain, my brother. I know you front to struggle. I know how hard you hustle just to take care of your mother. In his recent Rolling Stone cover story, he calls most of his music fictional, but there's a whole lot of truth in this song. I mean, he speaks on some real-life situations that really sound a lot like the ongoing RICO trial that his friend and collaborator Young Thug is going through. He talks about artists' lyrics being used to prosecute him in criminal cases, and he mourns a lot of the friends and family that he's lost along the way. Father God, forgive me for my sins. 
take the mask off out my enemies this out here acting like my friends did some i'm praying i never gotta do again i put blood sweat and tears inside this wind you know at, at the end of the album the, he goes on this whole thing about telling teens really right he goes like yeah. stay in school keep your friends close to you you know think right. about your mom she loves you da, da, da. Mm -hmm. um what does this album tell us about where 21 savage is right now as a rapper yeah it's interesting i think that in a lot of ways you know even though a lot of his music is really dark um and a lot of his past is really dark so there's congruency there He's come to a place in his life where that's not the reality that he's trying to live now or that he actually lives now. And he wants people to see it as a form of entertainment. You probably got your mama scared, don't want to watch the news. Ready to risk your life and freedom for a pair of shoes. Yeah, you say you love your switch, but they don't love you back. You can hug that block all night and ain't gonna hug you back. Some of your friends gonna reincarnate and come back as rats. And at the old candlelight, they ain't gonna give your mama jack. This album, I think, is really showing fans and, and foes alike that the narrative he's presented his whole career is really one that he's still standing on, you know. And in some ways, it's really a victory of sorts, even if the picture that it paints is one that ultimately shows how unattainable the American dream is for a certain race and class of people. That's NPR's Rodney Carmichael, co-host of the podcast Louder Than a Riot. Thanks, Rodney. Thanks, Andrew. Dog stretched out and watch him struggle trying to let his last breath out. You don't want to do it, but you lost some real that you gotta step out. One more seat left in the car, you gotta help out. Yeah, stressed out. Yeah, probably why I tell the kids to put the guns down. Gangster, but I still cry with nobody around. Trying to numb the pain, drinking bottles till I drown. Never do no.